Father, I thank you that we can gather here in this place today to worship you, to sing praises unto you. God, we thank you for the gift of music, how it transports us to a different place. God, we thank you that uh, we have gathered here today in your name. And God, we want to honor you and glorify you in everything that we do. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, open God's word to the book of Romans. Romans chapter one, verse 16 following. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The message that Paul and the other disciples proclaimed many years ago in the Mediterranean world that changed the world forever was the gospel. The gospel. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the good news about what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And as we embark on this new series called The Church Awake and Not Woke, we need to remember the gospel. We need to remember that our power, the power that God has given to us by his grace, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, to help kick off the series, I cannot think of a better special guest to have than who we have here today. He is a graduate of Baylor University and USC Law School. He served in the United States Congress for eight years. He has authored many books. He currently is the host of the Fox show, Sunday Night in America. He's married to his lovely wife, Terry, for 33 years. They have two adult children. And it's my honor to welcome back to the great state of Texas, South Carolina's finest, Trey Gowdy. Thank you all. I love being here. Got it. Home away from home. Yeah, exactly right. If you could get those warrants from college resolved up in Waco, I might move back to Texas. (laughs) Hey, Gowdy, they think you're joking. That's what's funny. Right. They think that's a joke, Um, but we will not go there. Uh, Can I I say one thing? Because people do ask me, how do you know the Youngs? People in South Carolina that watch your worship service. Uh, My father wanted me to go to a military school called the Citadel. Uh, Single gender. And when I was a senior in high school, he said, you can go to the Citadel or you can go to work. Those are your two options. (laughs) 
And at the time, I did not appreciate the virtues of getting up at 5.30 in the morning, having short hair, or single gender education. In fact, I don't appreciate the virtues of any of those three even now. But then I certainly did not. So I got my pastor to talk him into letting me go to Baylor University, and my father drove me out here in a pickup truck. My sister is here. My middle sister, Caroline, is here. She can probably relate to this. He dropped me off. The dorm was not even open yet. Uh, I'm not sure my mom knows that. I guess she does now. But he dropped me off. He had a 14-hour drive ahead of him. He dropped me off, and I'm sitting on the stairs waiting on Penland Hall to open up. And I meet Ben Young. And Ben had a connection to South Carolina. We both love sports. Literally the first friend that I made at Baylor University was Ben Young. And then through you, of course, I met your father and your beautiful mom, God rest her soul, mm -hmm. yes. and then Ed Jr. playing basketball, and then the most talented of the young sons, Cliff. So, <laughs> met them all. That's true. That's true. Um, Gowdy, I was calculating the day, 40 years. We've known each other 40 years. It well, one of us is getting old, it you know? It doesn't Gray seem air. like a day over 50, does it? Yeah. It's hard to believe. And you have not changed a bit. Having you around in college was worse than having a parent there. Yeah. I mean, your parents every now and again might let you get away with something, especially your mom. But Ben, in the four years we were at Baylor, to the best of my recollection, never, ever did a single thing that was wrong, yes. ever. As far as you know, Trey. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save myself. I'm going to ask you a selfish question because when you're not here, when you're back in South Carolina, I get asked this question by many folks in our congregation almost on a weekly basis. When is your friend... Trey Gowdy gonna enter politics again, re-enter politics. I Last night, we talked to someone on the phone who has a plan for you. Yeah, he does. We won't say who that is. You can guess. So. He has a very ambitious plan for yes, me. But does. let me tell you who does not. Uh, and that is the woman that I have been living with for the last 33 years. And I cannot afford the alimony or child support of going back into <laughs> politics. I, look, I love being in the courtroom. It is the job I hope you will remember me for, the pursuit of justice, standing up for victims, working with law enforcement. I loved every second of that job, but I just, I did not enjoy politics. But you did it well. You really did. Sure you did it well. That's like you saying did. you're a good bank robber. No, I mean, no, I'm no. Not sure that <laughs> that's not true, Gowdy. That, that, to me, seriously, you know, hey, we're friends. Uh, a lot of people, I don't care where they are on the political spectrum, they go to D.C. and they get crazy. And, and a lot of conservatives, I hear you're kind of conservative at times, they start drinking the water in the Potomac and they change. And, and you did not change. You stood by your values, your morals. And, you know, we, I respect that. We all do. Well, I... Uh... Thank you for saying that. I tried really hard not to. I, I will say this, it's not popular to say, but it's true and something can be, both be unpopular and true. The people I hung around with 
um, some of whom are not household names, also did not change. But we're in a culture now that, that views fame as the ultimate virtue. Right. And it's not honesty. It's not integrity. I mean, if I were to ask you, start naming members of the house that were there when I was there, as smart as you are and as much as you may follow current events, you may can name 30, maybe, mm -hmm. out of 435. So... You know, Tim Scott's one of the best people I've ever met inside or outside of politics. Yes. There are plenty of good people up there, but it is possible, and I'll bet your congregation can relate to this. I'll bet there's somebody out there that can really sing very well but doesn't enjoy it. I'll bet there are folks that could do this, but they just don't enjoy it. Mm -hmm. So being okay at something but not liking it nets out to me right. that you probably shouldn't do it. Yeah. But the good thing about that and that attitude is you viewed it in a sense as a calling for that season in your life because hopefully there are people here in their congregation that also will have that call to say, hey, God's calling me to do this and to be in this area, though it is difficult. It is, and it, and it forces you to have a conversation with yourself. What do you want to be known for or by? And, you know, if you're a believer that participates in the political process, that's one thing. But if you're a Republican or Democrat who goes to church, that's something else. Mm -hmm. It is how you see your first identity. Right. And it is hard in the current political environment um, and I'm not just talking about your colleagues. My, my colleagues, you know, my expectations were not super high that I was going to have a ton in, in common with some of my colleagues. Mm -hmm. But I did come from an environment where there was a judge and there's a jury and facts matter and evidence matters. And that was just not my experience. The, the, right. Look, I'm not going to beat up on the D.C. media but I hope you'll invite me back to do that sometime, but I'm not going to do it today. In any time, any time. It, it was disheartening when you think, when you think the judge is not fair. It is a very disheartening environment in which to work. Speaking of our environment and our culture, I feel like a lot of us feel like we have front row seats to, to the collapse of our culture when things that for years and decades in Western civilization, things that were condemned are now celebrated, things that were celebrated are now condemned. How do you see where we are as a culture in the United States of America? That's a great question. My wife and I just came back from Israel. Um, I don't have a bucket list other than don't die. That's on my bucket list. But I wanted, I wanted to take her to Israel. And I am, I, I spent those 10 days just fascinated by both the reality of what Israel is today, kind of surrounded by people that aren't crazy about you, mm -hmm. but more fascinated by the culture in which Jesus was born and lived and had his ministry. I mean, that part of the world was under foreign rule there was no democracy. The Romans ruled it, and yet he didn't say a ton about politics. Mm -hmm. I think many of his believers thought that he was going to be a political or military messiah. Correct. But he had something else 
in mind. So I, what I tell myself, and it sounds fatalistic, but I do tell myself, there's no guarantee that you're ever going to be in the majority. Being in the majority doesn't mean that you're right. So the word remnant, can you be the remnant? Can you? This book is full of bad things happening to God's people. <laughs> so you can be living a virtuous life and still have not great things happen to you. And we're not wired to think that way. Mm -hmm. We think if I do this or if this is right, it should be the majority. But history's told us it's not always that way. Mm -hmm. So you've heard me use this quote before, G.K. Chesterton, it's not that Christianity has been tried and failed. It is that it is really tough and therefore rarely tried. Let's try it. Yeah. Live out the teachings of Christ. If you win elections, that's great. If you don't win elections, don't lose confidence in the teachings. These truths have been around for thousands of years. They can survive the next election cycle. You sure about that? I think so. <laughs> I think so. I think the predominant, the, the, the two, I guess, predominant emotions right now within our culture, I think, would be fear. When I talk to people, they're afraid. They're afraid to speak up. They're afraid to post something. They're afraid to say something that may not be accepted in their, in their company or at their school. Fear is a huge emotion. For others, it's anger. They're angry, they're mad, they're upset about what's going on. How would you speak, speak to those that are afraid or those that are angry out there? Look, I've been afraid of something for most of my life. I just wrote a book. It's not out. It won't come out till January. But I, I, I you know, Caroline will remember this. I was afraid that my parents were going to leave me at Kmart. We would go to Kmart. My three sisters yes. would go off to the girls' clothing section. I didn't have much of an interest in doing that. So I would follow my dad, who apparently was unaware that he had four children because he would walk on ahead of me. <laughs> and so I would go to the front, and over the speaker system, I would have the manager of Kmart say, will the parents of Trey Gowdy please come to the front? Really? So my mom would come running, and my dad would come walking up there and make sure that I was okay. Fear... Um, is not good, except it does make us cautious, and caution is good. So, if you're fearful that something you will say or write will not be well taken, you should evaluate using caution whether it should be said, because just because there's a negative reaction to what you say does not mean what you said was right. I mean, something right. can get a negative reaction and also not be the right thing to say. So is it, does it advance the teachings and precepts of Christ? That would be the number one thing I ask. Um, am I 100% sure that what I'm saying is correct? And this is where being a lawyer comes in, because I'm rarely 100%. I mean, is there a fact out there that I'm not aware of? Okay. The anger is trickier, because to me, Ben, and you, you're much better at this stuff than I am, but anger to me is not a primary emotion. It's a secondary emotion. Mm -hmm. Something else happens, and therefore we become angry. And I think the anger comes from a, a belief that our beliefs are secondary, subservient, not as important as others. And again, I, 
I would encourage people, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you're going to have the author of a really good book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer next week. Bonhoeffer believed what he believed, and he was executed for it. Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. never made it to age 40 for what he believed, assassinated. Right. And Jesus lost a voice vote to a guy named Barabbas, who was either a notorious criminal or a murderer, depending on your perspective. Depending on which book you're reading, he's either a criminal or a murderer. And Jesus lost a voice vote to him. So if the Son of God can lose a voice vote, then I probably, and be put to death, I probably should be prepared to accept some scrutiny for what I believe. That, mm-hmm. that's, that's my view on it. Okay, how, how about this? A woman is a woman and a man is a man. And I, and they're clapping for that today? That's where we are? That's the page we're on? That, I, I'm agreeing more with Bill Maher than a lot of pastors right now who can't say that out loud? There was a time when that was not a controversial statement to make. Yeah. Like, for like maybe no, six weeks ago. Yeah. Um, I, here's what I don't know. I, I, I think, I think the, the perspective is out of whack in this country. I think most Americans are of like mind on many issues. Mm-hmm. I think the, the filters from which, through which we get our information are not aligned, right. whether that's the media, the print media, social media, mm-hmm. uh, Hollywood, uh, you and I had a nice conversation about ESPN, which used to be a sports network, it by did. the way. Yeah, years ago. Uh, the filters that we have to crawl through to get information, I don't think reflect uh, the majority view in this country. Right. I agree. Let's talk about George Soros, okay? Tell us, because you hear people talk about him a lot. I know you talked about him last week on your show. Tell us, who is George Soros, and how is he trying to influence our culture, especially in the courts? I don't know a ton about him, and I only talked about him last week because I think it's important that people know you can be rich and still not be smart. Uh, and I think that's a, great, that's a great lesson for all of us. Yes. Uh, the criminal justice system to me, or our justice system, while not perfect, um, is really the last institution that we have that most people have some confidence in. Mm -hmm. No longer is it government or Congress or the media. It's the justice system. And I think what Mr. Soros figured out is it's really tough to convince y'all that prison is bad. It's really tough to convince y'all that we should continue to let people out on bond no matter what they've done. Um, It is not hard to get someone elected, namely a prosecutor that can with one office, you know, we hear the phrase anti-democracy, anti-democratic. I really can't think of anything more anti-democratic than, and I used to be a district attorney, than a district attorney saying, yes, it's the law, but I'm not going to enforce it. You're welcome to change the law. You're welcome to criticize the law. I just don't think law enforcement officers are welcome to ignore the law. But that's the path of least resistance for him and his worldview. Mm -hmm is not to go employ a bunch of defense attorneys, it is to have a defense attorney take over the prosecutor's office. But again, on the long arc of history, Ben, it ain't working out too well. 
They just right. recalled one in San Francisco. They got another one in Los Angeles. And it, at a certain point, if you count on the innate goodness and fairness of your fellow citizens, things will be corrected, even in San Francisco. Yeah. So, Trey, talk to us about uh, Judas. Judas. Judas, yeah, because people ask us, what do you talk to, to Trey about? And I go, Trey is really hung up on Judas and the Bible. And so I wanted to get this out in the open too and talk to us about Judas and, and your thoughts on him. Because I think it's, it's really interesting. I, I'm, not just, I'm not joking, but go there a little bit. Yeah, I think it started when I was a kid. I asked my pastor whether he thought Judas was in uh, heaven or hell. Yes. And different people answer that question differently. Judas, to me, is a, a great starting point for a conversation about whether or not we have free will. Um, you know, Jesus, being the Son of God, knew exactly what Judas would do when mm -hmm. he picked him to be one of the disciples. I don't, the other disciples may have been surprised, but Jesus was not surprised. Mm -hmm. And then I contrast, you know, Judas' betrayal of Christ mm -hmm. with Peter's denial of Christ. And if you go match them, at least for a three or four day period, you do see some similarities, yet the church was built upon the rock. That's right. And Judas may be the most reviled name mm -hmm. in history, certainly one of them. And he took his life on the rock. He, if you, you know, he returned he, the silver, took his life, right. and said, I have shed innocent blood. Yeah. Uh, however, there's a verse... I think you would know better than I do because you have a PhD. You have a real doctorate, and mine was given to me in a 30-minute ceremony at a yeah, school. Yeah, there are a lot of people like that. Go ahead. I think Jesus said yeah. it would have been better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck or to not be born. Correct. <laughs> and so I'm going to have to side with Jesus on his assessment of Judas. Yeah. To me, again, fairness is important to me. I, I, I can't get it out of my system. Mm -hmm. When I look at what Peter did, and he asked forgiveness for it and went on to have a fantastic ministry, it's not great. He denied him. Um, he didn't want to be anywhere That's around right. when Jesus was on trial and being punished. So the fair part of me says, okay, we're all going to deny him either mm -hmm. in word or deed. Mm -hmm. How does the story end? Does the story end by giving up, which is what Judas did when he took yeah. his life, or does the story end by going on and being one of the most revered names in Christian right. history, which is where Peter wound up? Yeah, and, and Peter embraced grace. He, he, embraced, he embraced that gospel, the power of God, and, and experienced you know, true salvation. That's what made him, one of the things that made him such a powerful Christian and a powerful leader. He also tamed his temper. And yes. there's a... You know, yeah. speaking of angry, you know, Peter's reaction to the betrayal of Christ was to cut off the ear of a Roman soldier, yep. which tells me you can be around Jesus for a long time and still not get the essence of his ministry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Talk to us about the church, because the series that we're going to enter into the next few weeks uh, is about the church, the church waking up to this moment in history. Uh, how do you think the church, our church specifically, the church at large, can make a difference on our culture today? You know, when, 
when my wife and I were in Israel, we went to the spot where Jesus asked his disciples, who do they say that I am? And he got a bunch of different answers. And then I think Peter did something else a few minutes later, and he said, get behind me, Satan. So, I think I got the right story. Yes. You're the, oh, yeah, no, you're, you're, I always have to look at you because you're I went there. to law school and you went to seminary. Come on. So I, I think, so when I'm listening to that, I'm thinking, okay, what if the question were reversed? I mean, this is Jesus saying, who do they say they, I, that, that I am? What if he were to ask you, who do they say that you are? Mm-hmm. Who do your neighbors say that you are? Who do your coworkers say that you are? What's your main source of identity? Is it politics or is it your faith? The role of the church is to follow the teachings of Christ and be a light. And when the sun is really, really bright, you don't really need the light, do you? Things are going well. Mm. When things are dark, when things aren't going well, that's when you need the light. I... This will not be a wildly popular thing for me to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, which is really evidence that I'm never running for office again. (laughs) I see what one political party has gained from the trust and confidence of evangelical believers. I don't see what the church has gained as a result Mm. of that relationship. Wow. I I think the influence of the church has gone down in my lifetime, Mm -hmm. and the influence of government and the state has gone up. Right. And I, I think if you live the sometimes radical teachings of Christ, uh, that is what we're called to do. I think mm-hmm. you definitely have to participate in the political process. You have to be informed. You have to speak out. But speaking out in love is what he did, which is the opposite of speaking out in anger and frustration. Right. And one of the things I think that you did not just when you were in D.C., but I think you currently do on, on your show, is that you reach out to people on both sides of the political aisle. Uh, e- even last night at dinner, uh, this young uh, couple was sitting beside us. And <laughs> tell, tell them what happened. I think that's very reflective of, of, of who you are uh, and who you strive to be. There is a b- beautiful young couple sitting beside us, and Ben had gotten up to... I thought he was going to pay the bill, but I should have known. <laughs> I should have known better. Wow. He was getting up to go speak to a, a member of his adoring entourage, and the young man beside me said, um, "Did you used to be in Congress?" And I said, "I did." And he said, "I'm a Democrat, but I liked you." And I said, uh, "That's the same thing my daughter tells me." <laughs> so. That's true. That's <laughs> <laughs> exactly what I told him. I said, don't worry about that. I, I um, for a couple of reasons, the lawyer in me wants to make sure I know all the arguments and all the facts. And if the people I'm talking to don't know any more than I know, or they believe the exact same thing that I believe, I'm probably not going to learn a lot. I'm not going to be a really good advocate. As a prosecutor, I was much more interested in what the defense was going to be than what me and the cops had already learned. So I think there's value in talking to people that have a different perspective. Number one, it's gonna make you a better advocate for what you do believe. 
It's really hard to be persuasive if you don't have a relationship with someone else. So if you want to persuade people that your worldview is the best worldview, I don't know how you do it if you don't communicate with them. And I have seen, uh, you know, the courtroom, you see terrible, terrible, terrible things. And it gives you a perspective on life that someone having a different view of what the top marginal tax rate should be, it, not minimizing the importance of it, but when you have watched kids get abused and kids get murdered and women get murdered, that's something to get really, really excited about, animated about, right. fired up about. Whether the top rate should be 34 or 32, I'm not saying it's not important, it just is not enough for me to get super animated. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I think, you know, when you were in, in Congress and stuff, you had, you know, so many diverse friends. Like when you were uh, head of Benghazi, you know, you, you and Elijah Cummings, I mean, those of us who watched that, I mean, it got really heated, right? But you guys are friends, that's, that's interesting. We never had a crossword right. out of the committee room. I never, you know, I just, I don't know. I don't, I, arguing is not the most effective way to communicate information. Right. And then when you begin to challenge people's motives then relationships get fractured. You know, Tulsi Gabbard, uh, progressive person of Hindu faith mm -hmm. from Hawaii when I was there, when nine black Christians were murdered at a church in Charleston, South Carolina, mm -hmm. Mother Emanuel. I'm in the room with Tim Scott, getting, we're gonna have the memorial service. And you can imagine, if you don't know Tim Scott, he's an African-American United States Senator from South Carolina. His family, he had family members that attended that church. I mean, you just, you can imagine what is going through his mind. And there's a knock on the door. And it's Tulsi Gabbard. Charleston is nowhere near Hawaii, but she came to the memorial service and she sought him out to offer him love and compassion. Mm -hmm. Different faith, different political background, different life experience. But there's this beautiful moment of Tulsi embracing Tim because they found something they had in common, which was a shared grief. Mm -hmm. That's much more my recollection of my eight years there than Mr. Cummings and I having minor disagreements uh, <laughs> over things which we never did privately. I just, right. look, there are plenty of things to fight about in life. Some of the things you mentioned are worth fighting about. Mm -hmm. But there's a time and a season for everything, and I don't like burning bridges down, especially if I may need to walk back over that bridge at some point. So make your case, be respectful, um, burn as few bridges as you can burn. Let's thank Trey Gowdy for being here. Thank you. Today. Thank you. Thank you, Garth.